Today we are in the book of Acts, chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 today, and uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you, and we know that it is because you first loved us. And as we have worshipped you in song, and we've worshipped you with our giving, we now want to worship you the study of God's word. And we pray that your word would just have its way in our hearts today as we are reminded of the power of your word to transform lives, to transform cities, to transform whole geographical regions. And God, we pray that your word would have a transforming effect in our lives today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You know, when my kids were young, Disney, Walt Disney, was a pretty cool company back then. Uh, It wasn't marked by all of the liberal ideologies that have plagued that company today. And so my kids, when they were young, we watched a lot of the Disney animated movies. And one of our favorites was Beauty and the Beast. And there's a particular scene in that movie that I really love. I've seen that movie probably 12 times, you know, over the course of all of my kids. And I love the scene where the beast takes Belle, wanting to bless Belle. He takes her into that room in his castle that is the library. And he pulls back the curtain, and Belle, who just loves books, what she sees is just from floor to ceiling is just a room that is just packed and filled with books. It's more books than she has ever seen in her life. And every time I see that that scene, I think of two Bible verses. And you're thinking, of course you do. You're a pastor. Um, But two Bible verses, the first is there in John chapter. 21. It's at the end of John's gospel. And as John is wrapping up talking about Jesus, he says this, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He's saying this, that the ministry of Jesus was so vast, that it was so big that that all the books in the world, all the libraries in the world could not contain the things that Jesus did. Isn't that amazing to think about? The second verse that comes to my mind is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says this, that the word of God is living and powerful And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, that it is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And I want you to think about that because that is amazing. The word of God, so powerful. And so imagine, you know, Bell in that library and, and let's just, let's bring it into, into this room. Let's, let's imagine that, that this room was turned into a giant library. So from floor to ceiling, all along the walls are bookcases filled with books. And then all up and down, you know, where all the chairs are, are these bookcases filled with books. So we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of books on all of these shelves. And somewhere in the midst of all of these books, there is a Bible. 
That Bible is the only book amongst those thousands of books that you could say that it's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it has the power to transform a life. Now, with these other books, you might say that some of them were insightful, They maybe changed your perspective or changed your way of thinking, maybe even changed an attitude about something. But the Bible doesn't just change our thoughts and attitudes and perspectives. It transforms our hearts. It cuts into the very core of who we are. It points out to us what is wrong with us, that the Bible literally does surgery on us and it does a healing within us. That's the power of the word of God. It is alive. It has the power to change and transform a person fully, mind, soul, and spirit, because it is the word of God. It's not just words on a page. It's not just words written by men, but it's words that come from the very heart of God who loves us. And in our study this morning, we're going to see the impact that the word of God had on a city called Ephesus. And as we look at what the word of God did in Ephesus, we'll draw some parallels and some conclusions concerning what the word of God can do in our lives if we let it. And so last week we saw Paul arrive there in Ephesus. We're going to pick it up in verse eight. It says, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Skip down to verse 20. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Acts chapter 19 brings us to Paul's third missionary journey. And in Paul's first two missionary journeys, his his whole mode of operation was to go further faster. In other words, Paul, he wanted to go as far as he could and bring the gospel to as many people as he could. So when he went into various cities, he didn't stay anywhere very long. But he would go into these cities and he was just trying to get the gospel to as many people as possible there in the Roman Empire. But in his third missionary journey, it's different. In his third missionary journey, his whole focus is about strengthening the Christians. And so he's going back to the various cities where he has already planted, you know, these churches to strengthen the disciples. And he comes, he's going to end up here in the city of Ephesus, where he will literally spend three years ministering in that city. It was the longest stay that Paul ever had in any one city. And Ephesus was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. It was a political, a religious, and a commercial center there in Asia Minor. And at the time of Paul's ministry, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of about 250,000 people. 
But Ephesus was heavily influenced by the worship of the goddess of fertility. The Greeks called her Artemis, but the Romans, they changed the names of many of the Greek gods, and they they referred to Artemis as Diana. And so this was a city that was given over to idolatry, and there was a very strong demonic presence there. In fact, have you ever gone into a place or maybe have gone into a city that you just could feel the evil in that place? I remember when our family, about 20 years ago or so, we were driving back from Oregon and we decided that we were going to go spend the night, go stay in Santa Cruz. We wanted to see Santa Cruz. And so as we're driving down the pass from San Jose, as it drops into Santa Cruz, as we were dropping into Santa Cruz, we could feel the evil in that city. It was crazy. And the longer we stayed there, we just felt a dark presence in that city. I have no idea what Santa Cruz was, is like now. But back then, it was kind of known to be a weird and kind of an evil place. Well, that's how Ephesus was. You could sense it. You could feel it when you came into that city. But God moved mightily in that city through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the work that God did through the Apostle Paul could really be summed up in two verses in our text. The first is in verse 10. It says, and all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This is amazing. The word of God was moving and working in the city of Ephesus in such a powerful way that the ministry of Jesus spread, not just in Ephesus, but all over Asia Minor. Now, that is a landmass of about 300,000 square miles. How big would that be? That would be like taking Arizona, Utah, and Nevada and combining them all together. Or that would be like taking the state of California and putting two Californias side by side. That's a little over 300,000 uh, square miles. But, but think about that. The word of God had impacted the whole area of Asia Minor. That's the first thing we see. The second verse statement is found in verse 20, where it says, The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In that city, lives were being transformed by the gospel, and the word of God was prevailing over people's lives as well as over the enemy. So here's the question that I want us to consider today, or questions. The first is this. Do you want the word of God to dwell mightily and prevail in your life? Hopefully your answer to that is yes. And the second question then is, what does that look like? What does it look like when that is happening? How can the word of God grow mightily and prevail in our lives? What do we learn from Acts chapter 19? Well, the first thing we learn is that we see in verse 6, we talked about this last week, is that it starts with a outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you remember, if you were with us last week, Paul goes into that city. He meets these guys who have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We come to find out later, they're not even saved yet. But Paul preaches Jesus. They get saved. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's how the work begins here in Ephesus. It begins with a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And if we want the word of God to prevail in our lives, we need to constantly be in that place where we're giving 
ourselves to the, the filling and, and asking God to fill us afresh with his Holy Spirit. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you. Go online. It was a very important passage that we looked at. Go online listen to it. That's where it starts. We're not going to go into that anymore today, but, but that's where it begins. But the second thing we, we see here in our text in Acts chapter 19 is it happens when we develop a consistency for being in the word of God. Let me say that again. It happens when we, as individual believers, develop a consistency for being in the word of God. And what we learn here is that Paul spent two plus years faithfully teaching the word in this city. We notice in verses 8 through 10 that Paul follows his normal kind of mode of operation. When he comes into the city, the first place he goes is into the synagogue. That's what we've seen over and over again as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Paul goes into a city and he first goes into the synagogue and he first targets the Jews. And here in Ephesus, it was a little bit different from some of the other places that Paul went is they actually were receptive. He spends three whole months teaching there in in the synagogue in Ephesus. And there were three reactions to Paul's teaching. There were some who believed in Jesus instantly. There were others who came to the Lord gradually. It took a little bit more time. And then we see in verse 9 that there were some who were hardened. And the verb harden is passive, meaning that this is something that happened to them over time. Think of it this way. If you take a piece of clay and you put it out in the sun, something is going to happen to that clay. It's going to harden. But it doesn't happen instantly. It happens over a number of days. And listen, the same thing can happen in our hearts. That the more our hearts resist the Holy Spirit, the more that God is seeking to speak to us and, and, and work on and do some you know, work in our hearts, but we resist that, that area of our heart becomes resistant to the Holy Spirit. And the more that we resist, the, it, becomes, it, it, it gets harder. The longer that we resist, the, the harder our heart gets. So some people were responding to the word of God being taught, and God was working there in Ephesus. Others were resisting and becoming hardened. And those whose hearts were being hardened began to speak evil of the way. That was the name of the followers of Jesus at that time. These were the ones that they said were following the way of Jesus. So those who were hardened began stirring up the Jews to reject the message that Paul was sharing. And so Paul does what we've seen him do now in city after city after city. When the Jews in the synagogue are now resisting what he's saying, he finds a place where the Gentiles congregate to do his Bible studies. And our text tells us that he ends up sharing at the school of Tyrannus. Now, this is a very interesting name because it literally means the school of the tyrants. I wonder how he got that name. I doubt it was, and most scholars don't believe that that was actually his real name because, you know, no parents are going to name their baby, you know, the tyrant, unless maybe he comes out and just 
cried for two weeks straight. It's like, we'll call him the tyrant. Or, or maybe during his terrible twos, they gave him that nickname. But most scholars believe that this was actually a name that this headmaster of the school was given by his students. That he was just a hard-nosed guy. So the school became nicknamed the School of the Tyrant. But this is what I love. Paul ends up going and spending two years teaching in this school of the tyrant and teaching and talking about the one who was not a tyrant because Jesus doesn't seek to rule in anyone's heart or set up his kingdom in any place by force, but he seeks to rule in our lives by love. So verse 9 tells us that Paul taught there daily. So this would be every single day but the Sabbath. And he taught there for two whole years. And one Greek manuscript um, tells us, it kind of adds to this passage. And it's kind of the idea of it coming from an eyewitness that Paul taught there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every single day but the Sabbath. And that makes total sense when you understand how the culture worked in there in the Middle East because it was really, really hot. The temperatures would get well over 100. So most of the people, their workday would begin about 6 a.m. And from 6 a.m. to about 11 a.m., that's when they would work. And then at 11 a.m., when it starts to get really, really hot, that hot hot part of the day, that then they would take a break. And they would go have their family time. They would eat. They might nap. And then they'd come back out about 5 p.m., and they would work till dark. And that's the way their whole process went. And so Paul, during the hottest part of the day, Paul would go there into this school after he had spent hours, you know, making tents because that was his, his uh, way to make a living during that time. He would go into this school and he would teach for five hours every single day. So think about this. Five hours a day, six days a week for two years. That's over 3,000 hours of Bible study. That's amazing. So we get an idea when Paul tells the Ephesian elders in chapter 20 that when I was with you, I did not cease to give you the whole counsel of the word of God. We could see how that would be true. I mean, Paul spent a lot of time, over 3,000 hours teaching. And I find this very, very interesting for two reasons. Number one, it shows the eagerness of Paul to teach the word of God. And it also shows the eagerness of the people, the Christians there, to want to learn. And the second thing I find interesting is it shows the believers and Paul were willing to sacrifice comfort and convenience in order to give the word of God the opportunity to grow and prevail in their lives. So when others were resting, they seized the opportunity to learn and to grow. And that really is how the word of God grows and prevails in our lives. It's when we give ourselves to it consistently. Not just here at church. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we give ourselves. When we get together, we place a huge emphasis on teaching through the word of God. It's why we're spending 18 months going through the book of Acts. We think this is the best way to grow and learn. But it's not just here. It's also in our lives personally. And I want you to think about this. 
Ephesus was this broken city marked by idolatry with a strong demonic influence that was there. And what was God's solution? It was to send a man to faithfully teach the word of God day after day, five hours a day, six days a week for two whole years. And the result of that was the word of God grew mightily and prevailed in that city. And then it spread throughout all of Asia Minor. Now, as we continue in our passage today, we see how God confirmed the word by manifesting his power in some different ways. And we see the first there in verse 11 is that some unusual miracles were happening. Notice verse 11, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So Luke says that there were some unusual miracles that were happening. Other translations put it extraordinary miracles. The Amplified combines the that it was unusual and extraordinary. The idea is that this wasn't normal. This was out of the ordinary. And a miracle is something that defies the laws, the normal laws of the universe. That's what a miracle is. You know, when Moses touches his staff to the Red Sea and the waters part, that's unusual. I mean, you know, you can't take a broom today and go out to your swimming pool and touch it and the water's going to part. Or you can't go down to the beach today and grab a stick and touch the water and the water part so you can walk to Catalina. That just, that's unusual. That doesn't happen. Jesus walking on the water. That's unusual. Go try it today. Go get a boat, step out of the boat and see what happens. You know, that's unusual. Okay. And, and what, what Luke is saying here is, here in Ephesus, what was happening was an unusual even for a miracle. And he explains that, you know, Paul would be out there working with his, you know, building his tents. And it gets, gets hot, he's sweating, he takes out his handkerchief, he wipes his brow, he sets it down, and somebody sneaks up and grabs it. And they go home and they place it on their son or their daughter who's sick, and they get healed. That's unusual. But here's what I want you to know. This miracle is not replicated anywhere else. This was an unusual thing that God was doing there in Ephesus. I also want you to note that Paul doesn't start selling his handkerchiefs online, you know. He doesn't start a healing ministry. No, he doesn't do any of those things. This was something, it was weird that God was allowing to validate the preaching of the word of God. And the next thing we see that happened is even more weird. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who did so. Now this is worth noting. The demonic activity in Ephesus was so prevalent that there were those who had exorcism businesses. So if you needed a, a demon exercise, it's like you go online and you're looking up, I need the exorcist, like we would look for a plumber today, you know? 
And they would call, hey, I need you to come over. I need an exorcism. And so these guys, hearing about how Paul dealt with things, they they come and seeking to attach Jesus to their business practices and calling on the, the name of Jesus. They pick up on this technique. We exercise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Look at verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> and then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, this is worth noting. I want your attention for a few minutes. I mean, I want your attention the whole service, but I especially want your attention for the next few minutes, all right? It's interesting to me. The demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? I don't know you. Now, catch this. If you are a Christian, demons know you. They know you. Why? Because they know Jesus, who lives inside of you. They know that you belong to Jesus. And this is so important for us to understand that demons cannot inhabit a Christian. You know, we saw last week in Romans chapter 8, there in verses 9 through 16, where Paul said this over and over again, that if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. And so that means a demon cannot live inside of you as well. Because the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. They cannot coexist in the same body. Plus, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said this in verse 30, that we all have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And that's such an important verse. Because a seal in ancient times was a mark of two things. It was a mark of ownership You put your seal on something that was being shipped, that it was like, this belongs to you. You put your seal on an envelope, and that seal was an indication that not only who the owner was who was sending that letter, but it was also a mark of protection because that seal could not be tampered with. It couldn't be broken except by the person that it was being sent to. Now, demons can harass us. The Bible talks a lot about how we are in a spiritual battle and they tempt us and they seek to distract us, but God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit and a demon cannot tamper that. And I bring this up because this is an old idea, this idea that Christians can be possessed by demons. It's an old teaching that is gaining new popularity in our day and age. And there's this guy out in New York who has this deliverance ministry, and he calls himself a demon chaser, and he had a movie that came out, and this whole idea that Christians can be demon-possessed, it's not biblical. It's not biblical. You search the scriptures. I challenge you. 
You search the scriptures and you will not find one place where Jesus or any of the apostles cast a demon out of a Christian. It doesn't happen. Now, a lot of people, they want to argue from their experiences, but this is where we have to be careful. Our experiences must line up with scripture. And if our experiences supersede the scriptures, then we can get ourselves in a whole lot of trouble. And a lot of times these people who believe that Christians can be demon-possessed, they they go to the extreme where suddenly demons are being blamed for everything. It's not my flesh. Oh, it's the demon of anger. It's not my flesh. It's the demon of lust. It's the demon of chocolate cake. You know, all of these different kind of things that people attach that to. And here's what's really, really, some of you go, I have that demon. Yeah, no. (laughs) But here's what's really, really interesting to me, in all seriousness. Ephesus was this city where there was a lot of demonic activity happening. And Paul writes a letter to the church there in Ephesus. It's what we have in our Bible called the book of Ephesians. And in that letter, we have the most extensive teaching in the Bible on the subject of spiritual warfare. And Paul, in that teaching, listen to me, he mentions nothing nothing about demon possession in the life of a believer. Now, I ask you this question. Don't you think that the God who loves us and wants the best for us, if that was a possibility, that a Christian could be possessed by a demon, don't you think that Paul would have had the Holy Spirit inspire the Apostle Paul to write about that? But he doesn't. But you know what Paul does write about? He writes about the power of the word of God. And in that passage, there in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, when he's talking about the spiritual warfare, he starts off by saying that to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he says, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. And then he starts with the first piece of the armor, the belt of truth. And the belt of truth is the word of God primarily it's the truth about who Jesus is and who you are in Christ. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he who the son of man sets free is free indeed. So Paul starts with the truth. The focus is on the power of the word of God. And then every single armor, piece of armor after that is connected to the truth. The breastplate of righteousness is all about the righteousness that we have because we belong to Jesus. He talks about the shoes of peace that speaks about the peace that we experience in Christ. He talks about the shield of faith and it's the the faith through Jesus that we have to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. And in that whole passage in Ephesians 6, Paul does not say one single word about a Christian being possessed by a demon. And the demon need to be cast out of you. No, the thing he points to is that our strength over the enemy is directly connected to who we are in Christ. And so again, it's important to point out here that the demons, they knew Paul. They knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know these other guys who were not Christians. They didn't know them and they were powerless 
over the demon. The demon ends up beating them up. And so, but for, for those who are in Christ, those who know Christ, we're sealed. We're protected. Those who don't know Christ, they're open game. And that is serious. I mean, there are demons that still move and work in lives today. So we see the word of God was prevailing over sickness and disease. The word of God was prevailing over demons. The third way the word of God was prevailing is that people's lives were being radically transformed. Look at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. What's happening here? Believers are coming clean concerning their secret sins. When it says they came, it literally means they kept coming, like one after another. That the, the word of God was moving in such a powerful way and working through the word of God in such a powerful way. There's no coaxing. There's no begging. People were just convicted. And they're coming clean and they're clearing out the closets of their heart of all this stuff. That they held. And so God was moving and working in such a powerful way through the teaching of the Word of God that people were getting right with Him. And then the the next thing we see is that the believers cut ties with their past. Look at verse 19. And also, many of those who had practiced magic, so this would be the occult, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is radical. It's radical what God is doing. They brought their books on magic and spells, and they burned them all. So this is what they were doing. They were burning all their bridges to their past. The word of God is growing and prevailing, and the believers, they're burning all their junk. They're getting rid of these things that they held on to, their occultic practice. And I I mention this because this is important. Yes, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. But when we hold on to things of the past, when we hold on to occultic things, when we hold on to things that had us in bondage, or when we go back to those things, we can open up ourselves to giving the enemy a stronghold in our lives, a greater opportunity to oppress us, to exercise power over us, and so these guys, it's important. We see like, like they're convicted and they're like, man, we don't, we don't want anything to do with this stuff anymore. And so they, they're burning it. And here's the application for us today. We're told in the book of Hebrews that in this Christian life that it's like running a race. And there in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, so let us run laying aside all of the weights and the sin." The things that so easily entangle us. Now, sin we get, right? That's the things that are black and white in Scripture that go against the Word of God. And and it says, man, those things, you hold on, you're holding on. God can't bless compromise. He can't bless sin. Cracks me up when I see people who are living in sin and they're asking God to bless. He's not going to do that, friends. It says, lay aside the sin, but also he mentions the weights. What are the weights? 
Well, waves are things that are not black and white in Scripture, but they're things that can weigh us down. They're things that just hinder us. Hinder the word of God from growing and prevailing in our lives. And listen, if you want the word of God to grow and prevail in your lives, if there are weights, if there are things that you know that the Holy Spirit's been ministering to you, that, hey, that's a weight in your life. You need to let go of that. You need to, to, put, you need to burn it. And that burning, listen to me, the burning, they burned all their stuff. Why? It symbolizes getting rid of it completely. There's no going back. When you burn something, it's gone. You can't go back and you know, put those ashes and hope that it comes back together. They burned it. It symbolizes a permanent removal. So is there some weight in your life that the Holy Spirit's been saying, hey, you need to get rid of this. You need to put this aside. You need to get it out. Maybe the weight isn't a physical thing, Maybe it's a person that you need to break ties with. Now, I'm not saying to set anybody on fire. Okay, I'm just be clear, okay? <laughs> Permanent removal, okay? Permanent cutting ties. It's like, you know, we keep going back. We end up sleeping together, all this kind of stuff. You know, I see people do, and, and I just need to break all ties. I'm taking you out of my contact list. I just, I can't see you anymore. That's what it's talking about. Breaking ties. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's a lie from the enemy that you have allowed to live in your heart. Something that has crippled you and wounded you and defined you so that you no longer are having finding your identity in who you are in Jesus, but you are finding your identity in believing this lie. And you need to stand today in the truth of who you are in Christ and be done with that today. That's what's happening there in Ephesus. So the word of God is growing mightily and prevailing. Miracles were happening. Demons were being overcome. People are getting radically saved and transformed. They're breaking from their past. But here's what is also interesting. Is there was also still opposition. And this is what we've seen. Every chapter over and over again in the book of Acts. When God is moving and working the devil gets riled up and there is opposition. He's not going to stand by and let God move and work and transform lives. Jesus said about Satan that he's a thief and a robber who comes to kill and rob and destroy. Satan is hell-bent on our destruction. He is not your friend. He wants to pull you down. He wants to harass you. He wants to put you in bondage. He wants to distract you and to tempt you and discourage you. And if you're not a Christian, he'll do everything he can to keep you from coming to Jesus. Yes, Jesus said, he's a thief and a robber who comes to kill and rob and destroy. But then Jesus said this in the very next verse, but I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And in Jesus, we have the power to stand against the enemy because Jesus said in John chapter 16, greater is he that is in you. Everybody say in you. Greater is he that is in you. Who's in you? Jesus, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, let's quickly, as we wrap this up, let's note the opposition. This is kind of crazy what happens. Verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit 
that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered with him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So after three years, Paul is thinking that it's time to move on, and he really wants to get to Rome because Rome was the epicenter. And he wants to bring Jesus to the epicenter of the world. So he sends Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. He's going to meet up with them later. But he remains in Ephesus for a little while longer. Verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain, certain man named Demetrius... A silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana brought no small profit to the craftsmen, and he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not God which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. So this guy Demetrius comes and says, hey, this guy, Paul, he is bad for business. We need to get rid of this guy. Our business of our little making our little idols is going to fall into disrepute, meaning it's going to lose all respect. The worship of Diana is going to lose all respect. It's going to be found to be a fraud. And so he says, we need to get rid of this Paul guy. You know, in 1904, a revival broke out in Wales. It's known today as the Welsh Revival. And God was moving powerfully in the Welsh Revival through the preaching of a man by the name of Evan Roberts. And it's interesting that, that during that time, every single tavern and pub there in Wales went broke because of what God was doing, the move of the Spirit. And, and what's interesting is, you know, how many anti-alcohol sermons did Evan Roberts preach? Zero. How many anti, you know, or tirades against the taverns did he, did he give? Zero. What happened was people just lost their interest in alcohol when they were touched by the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the same thing is happening in Ephesus. The idol-making business is drying up. And so the innovators, the owners motivated by money, they say, man, we got to get rid of this Paul. So they create this uproar, verse 28. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So the believers are trying to protect Paul saying, don't go in there. It's getting dangerous. Verse 32. Some therefore, this is, notice this. Some therefore cried at one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
And they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice, they cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So picture this scene. I mean, this is like mob rule. These people getting together in the theater. And verse 32 says that some of them cried one thing and another cried another thing. A lot of them had no idea why they were even there. It's like, what are we protesting today? I don't know. Something about Diana. Okay, great is Diana. They had no idea. I think a lot of our protests today kind of are like this too, right? People just come to you and have no idea what they're protesting about. Two hours, verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, so now this Roman official steps in. And he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? That was the, the mythology they believed. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are, are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemies of your blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, there are judges. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, and there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. So this Roman official stands up and says, hey, this needs to come to an end. Because what you are doing, we're, we're drawing the attention of the big boys in Rome, and that's not going to bode well for us, this disorderly thing. They always wanted to keep the peace in the city so that, you know, the Rome, the emperor in Rome didn't find out about it. And so, verse 41 says, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the riot is over. I want to quickly just move into chapter 20 for a moment as we wrap this up. It says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So Paul's going to move on. It's time for him to move to the next assignment, verse 2. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words... He came to Greece and stayed there for three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea, now watch this, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Now this is so cool. This is Paul's ministry team. And if you notice this, if you've been with us, these are men from every city that he's gone to. So in every city that he goes to, he's picking up, you know, different guys that are joining the team and wanting to, you know, respond to this call of ministry. It says, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now this is where we're going to pick up things in the new year. We're going to pick up Paul in Troas, 
where something incredible happens. The title of that message in January 7th, New Year, got to be here. It's a sleep in the light. Something crazy happens there in Troas. But next week, we're taking a break from Acts. It's Christmas. We're going to be talking about Emmanuel, talking about the tale of two trees at our Christmas Eve services, Emmanuel in the morning. And then on December 31st, the day before New Year's, Jason Duff's going to be with us um, that day. He and I are actually going to switch pulpits that day. I'm going to be out in the garden. He's going to be here. And uh, part of the reason for that is if you know, you can be praying for Christy, Jason's wife. She has developed this condition that every time she's out in the desert or anywhere where the climate is really, really weird, um, her, all, her whole body breaks out in rashes. So she can't live in the desert right now. So they actually are living here in Oceanside. J- Jason's been going back and forth out to the desert. And um, so it being Christmas, I thought, you know, hey, this will give you a chance to spend a you know, long time with your family over Christmas. Why don't, you know, I, I said to him, why don't I go preach for you? You can preach for me. So that's what's going to happen on the 31st. He'll be here looking forward to that. But here's the thing. As we close today, this is the question. Do you want the word of God to grow mightily in your life and prevail? If you do, you need to live a life where you are constantly, continually asking the Lord to fill you afresh with his spirit. That you are living as one who is seeking to be dependent upon the moving and work of the Holy Spirit. And you need to be a person who is consistently giving yourself to the word of God. And when, listen to me, when the word of God challenges you to get rid of things in your life, do it. Burn it. Make a permanent break with it. Let the word of God do surgery on your heart to cut away those things, those attitudes, those, those, those various things that we can hold on to, to, to allow the word of God respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and get rid of that. And as you do that, God's word is going to grow and prevail in your life. And just like it did in Ephesus, it's going to have an impact beyond your life. It's going to impact your family. It's going to impact your friends. It's going to move into your workplace because that's what happens when we allow the word of God to grow and prevail in our lives. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful illustration that we have today in Acts chapter 19 of the power of God's, of your word. And Lord, we want your word to grow and prevail in our lives as well. Lord, we want you to have your way in us. So we want to be people who are yielded to that. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today that you would bless them, that you'd go before them this week as they they move toward Christmas. I pray, God, that they would not get so distracted by all the busyness that they would lose sight of what this season is all about, that you came into this world so that you could die on a cross to pay the price for our sins. 
and rise again from the dead to give life to anyone who would put their faith in you. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would go before us and bless us, that we would be men and women of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.